There is a well-known saying in the true crime world, never marry a Peterson. This case is one of the three that made us fear this family name. Did Drew Peterson kill two of his wives? And can we draw a pattern between these three men as to why we should stay away from the Petersons? Never a TikTok dancer out of me. So, hey, why is the name? And I'm back. I'm back, everybody. I'm like, back, back. Back in the game. Uh, by all means necessary is the game. It is the name of this podcast. I have Harry Potter scenery behind me for some fucking reason. Because we're back to school. We're back to Hogwarts. Thank you for letting me go on holiday. Post, like, Leonard Lake and Charles Ng archive from the YouTube. And then post <laughs> fucking episode number zero. I don't know how. I feel like there is a special thanks. I feel like there is a special reward needed for me not losing any listeners after I posted that episode. So thanks for cringing with me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a new chapter. Do we hear evolving yet again? I literally weren't absent for like, what, a week? <laughs> Did not miss a single episode. What is this about? So, I have decided to bring a drastic change to this podcast. <laughs> I'll even say it seriously. Um, the drastic change is that now, from now on, from this point on, except maybe for this episode, because I have some things to say, I will be mostly focusing on the case. I mean, I always do, but like, as in, you know, after the intro, I'm gonna just focus on the case and the expressions, if they appear, and I won't be pushing for them to appear during the episode, then I will explain, you know, the origin, the linguistics part of the expression, then and there. I will fit it into a story, rather than structure it. Let's just see how it goes. If it doesn't, then, then fuck it, then maybe I'll just eliminate expressions as a whole, even though they're part of me. The expression passion is part of me. As always, there will be timestamps on the screen and on YouTube if you watch, which I would highly suggest, because my face is there, and also faces of the people that I speak of, which is more important, you egoistic son of a gun. And you can, as always, let me know what you think about the new structure on the socials, that vampod across the Twitters and the Instagrams of this world, and podbam at gmail. Dot com And you can leave case suggestions. Sorry, it's just my spit on the floor uh, distracting me a bit. And you can leave all the case suggestions in the form that is in the description of the podcast. But now, before I tell you a story about the most punchable face, like, ever. Because Drew, oh my god, this case enraged me on so many levels. Let's talk a bit. Just a bit about Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, the one that is on trial right now as we speak. <laughs> the one. Listen, I'm so obsessed with this case. Like, it's it's next level because I've read Bad Blood. It's one of the best true crime books out there. It isn't really true crime. It's just investigative journalism. It is true crime. <laughs> 
then I listened to the podcast. Now I'm listening to Bad Blood on Trial and they, they drop out one listen. I'm just taking so much of the Terranos content out there. But the other night I have overdone it. Even for my standards of just being obsessed for something that I'm not really researching as a case, even for my own standards I went a bit too far. So I wanted to share that with you. What have I done at one in the morning the other night? I think it was also like a weekend night which makes it so much more pathetic. I would like to let you know that I have gone on Glassdoor. Uh-huh. 1am. Theranos, Glassdoor, then it was suddenly 2am, maybe 3am, and I have gone through um, probably all of the reviews, there's like hundred something of them, you know, easy. <laughs> For somebody that does research every freaking week, that was like, you know, a light read. So uh, let me share a couple of them with you. I should probably tell you who Elizabeth Holmes is before like diving into these Glassdoor reviews. Well, okay, Elizabeth Holmes, back in the day when she wasn't on trial, was the founder of this company called Terranus. And Terranus was supposed to make this groundbreaking technology, something that they called Edisons, like these machines where you would just give a pinprick of blood and you would put it into those machines, they would be like clang clang, a couple of minutes, test your blood, and then, well, tell you whatever the fuck. Like, she thought she would cure Ebola epidemic at times. She thought she could spot so many diseases a lot faster faster than any other company. And her whole premise was that she was scared of needles, that the process of blood taking and blood testing was taking unnecessarily long amount of time. And she thought she would be new Steve Jobs. But the technology just wasn't up to speed and still isn't in 2021. So people started doubting her, people within the company, there was toxic environment, and everybody who spoke up about everything that was happening in these labs, things that were happening in the labs, including the machines not working so that they had to process the results manually, the samples being just spoiled and not being able to be tested, and then them producing faulty results that would tell people they're pregnant when they were not, that they're sick when they're not, and then we have to go to the doctor to get retested. So it was all basically shambles and also misdiagnosing so many patients. And because she was in the public eye so much, talking about how groundbreaking this whole technology was, how she's gonna be approved by the FDA any minute now, while they were literally saying, like, no, you don't know how to run the business and also you're not really, like, qualified in this area. The journalist, John Carroy, I think that's how you pronounce his name, probably not, he caught onto the story, dug into it, interviewed her, got the whistleblowers, exposed the whole story, wrote a bestseller on it called Bad Blood, and from that point on, she is facing criminal charges on multiple different counts. But what else she was famous for, obviously, by being this Steve Jobs wannabe, her deep voice and infamous turtlenecks, was also the toxic culture within the company. Because if you were to go and speak up to her about the conditions in the lab, about the machines not working, you were seen as kind of a hater, as somebody who just doesn't see the progression, who just doesn't believe in the innovation, in this image of how things 
could really be. And then you would get fired. She also overworked people. People were working like 60 to 80 hours every week and she would infamously provide them with breakfast, lunch and dinner so that they could stay there for as long as possible. So that is why I compiled some Glassdoor reviews for you. Because it's so obvious, once they're written by Elizabeth Holmes, probably at like 2 in the morning, <laughs> 3 in the morning herself, and she feels like inspired to bullshit and she thinks like nobody will see through this back in like 2012. And then my favorite ones are the ones that are written like yesterday, <laughs> 2021. Like Theranos shut its doors because of their criminal investigation years ago, but no, people are like reviewing it now. And they're like, no, 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 current employee. <laughs> I'm like, bitch. Like, what? You just read the story. You just found a podcast and you're like, I want to shit over this company. And I love you for it. I live for this shit. So some of them that are clearly written by Elizabeth Holmes, and I will be putting screenshots on the screen. I'm not making this shit up. I clearly have the time to find them, but not to like make them up. So the ones from 2012, these are the cons. This is what whoever she paid to write these reviews, or Elizabeth herself, or Sonny himself, for that people will read and think like, no, this was definitely written by an employee. So cons. No gym on premises, although there's a basketball court, hiring rapidly and can't remember everyone's name. <laughs> and the advice, because you know how on Glassdoor you can leave advice to management? If you, like me, have reviewed multiple companies you worked for badly, you know very well by now. But the advice on this one is dry cleaning, laundry service, more beef jerky. <laughs> Another one from the 6th of April 2015. The title of it is Feeling Blessed. You already know it's paid for. You already know they had a meeting. <laughs> it's like fucking Jesus himself wrote it. The cons are too much free food every day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, holiday parties. Need to hit the gym soon and lose these extra pounds I have acquired. Then another one from December 2015. Well, the pros say that this person gets every day more and more inspired by Elizabeth and their co-workers. They're so fortunate and lucky. There's great culture. They love working here. And then for cons, and this is why I truly believe most of these negative reviews are written by Elizabeth Holmes herself. Those who write negative reviews were not here for the right reasons. Like, this is literally what she would say in those freaking meetings that she would have and, like, these different stand-ups that she would have. And what's so scary to me after reading this, I went to read about, you know, again, a hundred reviews of my old workplace that has the same rating on Glassdoor that Theranos does, which is concerning because it is also healthcare. So I went to read it and literally the same vibe is given to me about the toxic workplace, all of that. But in particular, it is that it's seen as startup, even though it's a healthcare be extended to NHS, which is clearly a public service. And another similarity is that that company has also been around for years. Like, it should definitely not be seen as startup. And that's something that I found so prevalent in all of the Terranus reviews. But something that I wanted to highlight that I think is written by a real person, and this is the cons bit of it that I don't think we necessarily ruminate on. I don't think we really see it this way. And it's not the cult aspect of it, because that's mentioned in quite a few of them. 
But it is that by conning their investors, they also, in a way, conned their employees. So this person said, despite doing some of our best work, many of us are doomed to be associated with this con job for the rest of our careers. That they didn't just con the investors, but also the employees. By believing in your mission and trusting your iron fist rule, you've ruined our career prospects and set us back six years. And I find that that is one thing that hasn't been explored by the book or by any of these podcasts. And trust me, I've read it all and listened to it all. And that is to what degree these employees have been affected by now. Because the podcast now, following up the case and speaking about the trial, has followed up with quite a few employees that were the whistleblowers. And they have all said that they got therapy after it and, you know, had broken family relationships because certain family members didn't believe them about Elizabeth. Certain family members all saw them as, like, these people who are against progress, against innovation, because they spoke ill of Elizabeth Holmes. But nobody really speaks about this aspect of it, which I find so fascinating, about how this job actually made them go backwards, because on every single application, every single CV that they submit, people are going to be like, oh... Theranos, tell me about it. Like, which part did you play in this? Were you a whistleblower? Did you stay quiet? If so, you know, did you have the agenda for doing one or the other? And we just don't speak about it. Now, with the Elizabeth Holmes corner out of the way, let us dive into the case of Stacy Peterson. And Joe Peterson was a sham in its own right. On October the 28th, 2007, Stacy Peterson, who was 23 years old, was supposed to meet with her friend to help her do some DIY, but she never shows up. So her sister Cassandra waits until the end of the day, but once Stacy still isn't picking up her calls, she goes to Stacy's house. At this point, it is about 11 p.m., and one of the four kids that lived with Drew and Stacy opens the door, says that their dad, Drew, isn't at home and that mom, Stacy, apparently went to visit a grandfather. So Cassandra gives a call to Drew Peterson and Drew says, no, he actually spoke to Stacy at around 9 p.m. that day. What Stacy told Drew was that she has actually taken a passport, her bikinis and few hundred dollars in cash and that she had left him for another man. But she also told Drew where she's going to leave her car so that he can come and pick up the car. The priorities. The priorities are there. She picked up the bikinis, and she left him a car. And usually in those situations, women always make sure to tell the husband that they're leaving, that they're leaving with a lover. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, she left without... Bringing any of the kids. Yeah. So Cassandra, of course, called bullshit on this story. And immediately at 4 a.m. the next morning, so just after midnight, she reported her sister missing. I am Cassandra Kales, Stacy Peterson's beloved sister. She's the missing mom from Bolingbroke, Illinois. She went missing on October 28, 2007. You know, she was my, not only my sister, she was my best friend. She was a mother to me. I talked to my sister 
pretty much every day, if not multiple times a day. My sister Stacy Peterson was the most amazing person in the world, I think. A lot of people think, you know, she would brighten up the room when you walk in and just put a smile on anybody's face. If you're having a bad day, she would just lighten everything, you know. I have a lot of happy memories of my sister, and I just keep those close to my heart, and those are what keeps me going. I discovered that Stacey was missing when she didn't call me that Sunday when she was supposed to wake up. I waited until about 3 p.m., and she hadn't called yet. So I kept making numerous phone calls to her house and to her cell phone, and she wasn't answering or returning my calls. The thoughts went through my mind when Stacey went missing, or that, you know, something had happened to her. She didn't leave willingly, and she basically told me she feared for her life because she was asking for a divorce from her husband. I wanted to get her out of the house that night, and she wouldn't go. She decided to stay with the children. What Cassandra wouldn't know at the time that will only come public during the investigation was that two days after her sister Stacy disappeared, Drew Peterson's stepbrother attempted to commit suicide. Another thing that puzzled Cassandra was that Stacy's car just magically reappeared in their parkway the next day. So, yet again, she goes to speak with Drew, she's like, what are you doing? I went, reported her missing. Are you even looking for Stacy? And he says, no, she isn't missing. She is with somebody else. So Cassandra is like, okay, why is her car here? And he's like, well, I told you, she told me where to pick it up from. And she told him to pick it up from the Clow Airport, which is about 400 yards from the Peterson home. So, with this information, Cassandra goes to the police and she's like, are there any cameras here, please? I want to see if my sister actually ever left this car. And the police looks into it and, of course, as always, the cameras just didn't work on that day. So, there's actually no footage of Stacy ever leaving the car or Drew ever coming to actually pick it up. At this point, as the police is investigating the case, a couple of timelines emerge. First, we have the timeline provided by Stacy's friends and family. At 9.40 a.m., the neighbor next door leaves her home to go do some shopping, and she spots both of the Petersons' cars in the driveway. They have log of Stacy's calls that show that at 10.15 a.m., her friend called her about painting the house that day, and Stacy, who was still in bed, said, like, she's gonna come a bit later. At 11.55, the neighbor that went to do some grocery shopping returns, and she only sees one car in the driveway. So, she doesn't think anything much of it. She goes in and rings next door once she unpacks the groceries. She rings next door with the intention to speak to Stacy and see if any of them want to come over for some candy. But one of the kids answers the phone and tells her the same story that they told Cassandra, that Stacy is out visiting a grandfather. Here, the father, Drew, takes the phone of the kid. He confirms that Stacy indeed is visiting her grandfather. And at 1 p.m., Drew actually brings the children over to this neighbor's house and tells her that he has an errand to run. 
He returns from doing this errand in about 15 minutes, but then later his phone call records show that he called in the police department, which just happens to be his place of work, he just happens to be a police officer, and he calls them to request a day off. His shift was supposed to start at 5 p.m. By the late afternoon, everybody tried reaching through to Stacy, but the phone calls went straight to voicemail, which everybody found to be weird because Stacy would always leave her phone on. At 9 p.m., we have a phone call recorded from Stacy's phone to Drew, and then at 11 p.m., Cassandra goes to her home. None of the cars are in the driveway, and one of the kids tells them that Drew said that she is going to see her grandfather. Now, the part of that story that I am yet to tell you was that 15 minutes after that, so just as she has spoken with the kids, Cassandra calls Drew, she asks for Stacy, and she kind of hears the shuffling and the sound of keys, and Drew tells her that he is at home and he has been looking for his wife. And Cassandra is there like, but I am at home and you are not here, so uh, no quadra, no quadra padrino, does not make sense. You are making zero sense, you thumb face. So, at 11.45, she goes to the police station nearby to make a missing persons report, but then they tell her she needs to go to a different police department to make this missing persons report, and it only just happened that Joe Peterson actually worked at that exact police department. Next up, we have Drew's timeline. Drew said that day he returned around 5.30, a.m., from his work. He does night shifts, apparently, this week, and before he went to bed, Stacy told him that she is going to visit her grandfather the next morning. At around 10-11 a.m., the kids woke up and noticed that their mom isn't at home, so noon to 1 p.m., he is with children, then he gives them to the neighbors to watch while he runs errands. At 2 p.m., he calls work to request a night off, and he says he does this because he accumulated enough sick time he could use before his retirement in December. One of his kids goes to this concert in the meantime, and at 6 p.m., he takes the other three kids to McDonald's. At around 7.30 p.m., they return home, the other child returns from the concert, and at 9 p.m. he is at home when he gets a call from Stacy, telling him that she has just left him for somebody else. So at 9.15, he goes out to look for Stacy, and at around 11, 11.30, he returns home because Cassandra is calling him, and he just lied to her, so he has to return to show up for his non-existent work on looking for his wife. And that night, at 11.45, he would go to the airport, which is where Stacy told him she has left her car. At midnight, he goes to bed, and at 2.30 a.m., his own police department rings him to inform him that Cassandra filed a missing person report for her sister. The third timeline, though, will be the one that will turn this case around, and that is the timeline of Drew's stepbrother, Thomas Morphy. 
So Thomas said the day before the disappearance, October 27th, Drew actually picked him up at his home, Thomas's home, and supposedly said that he is going to take him nearby for a job interview. But instead, he takes him to this park, sort of like private, isolated area in this park, and he just starts ranting about how Stacy is cheating on him, he knows it's true, and he wants to take care of that problem. So he asks Thomas if he loves him enough to kill for him. And Thomas is like, stepbrother, I like you enough, but not enough to kill for you. So Joy is like, okay, do you love me enough to cover up and to be able to live with the knowledge that I actually killed somebody? And at first, Thomas says yes. But then he goes home and rings him later that night and tells him that he can't be involved in any plan that he might or might not have. And Drew says he respects that. That's completely fine. Now, the next day, the day of disappearance, 28th of October, Drew shows up unannounced at his stepbrother's home again. They go to Starbucks drive-thru to get a coffee, and yet again, Drew drives him to another park, to another isolated spot. Drew gives Thomas a cell, and he tells him not to answer it. So he tells him the phone will definitely ring, just don't answer it. And after handing him this phone, Drew just disappears. He just goes away. And about 45 minutes after that, the phone did ring a couple of times, displaying Stacy as a caller. One of the times that the phone did ring was about 9.07 p.m. And that call was pocket answered, and the call lasted for a few minutes, but there was no transcript or no way for people to track what was actually said on that phone call. And if this isn't your first day within true crime world, there was nothing said on that phone call. This was just Drew covering his ass for that 9 p.m. call to have actually existed. After about an hour of these, like, sporadic phone calls, Drew returns to the park and picks up his stepbrother and he asks him to help him to move something. They drive to Drew's house, and here all of the kids were apparently in their rooms, so he tells Thomas to be quiet. And this is when Drew takes out a blue container out of his bedroom and asks Thomas to carry it down the stairs, out of the house, and into this place, which is a known dumping site, so it's kind of like a canal that everybody disposes things into, and there is a bunch of things in there. The police will look into this canal, and there will be divers, like, taking things out, volunteers taking things out of the canal, but they will never be able to find this blue barrel. After Thomas helps Drew, Drew tells him this never happened. So, around 10 p.m., Thomas actually speaks with one of his friends, and he tells him he just thinks he helped somebody dispose of a body. The next day, the day after the disappearance, October 29th, Thomas speaks to Drew and tells him that he actually wants to hang himself, that he can't live with himself knowing what he had done. 
Drew tells him not to worry, which is like the most inappropriate answer you can do when somebody tells you they're about to commit suicide. But empathy, as we will learn throughout this story, isn't Drew's strongest suit, even though he is a police officer and should really at least know how to fucking fake it. He doesn't. So that night, Thomas starts drinking, and he actually calls another brother of his, and this man says, can you please, like, ring the police, or rather ring the FBI, because if you ring the police, it might get to him. But instead, Thomas hangs up and overdoses on prescription pills. And then this other brother, once he couldn't reach him, he calls 911, and Thomas is taken to the hospital. Luckily, he will survive and will be able to testify to this movement of the blue barrel. To find out which one of these three timelines looks like the most plausible one, we need to go into the background of the people in this story. But something that I just want to pinpoint at this point in time is that even just from looking at these three timelines, the prevalent theme is that Drew seems to have known exactly what to do to divert the attention from Stacy and to him and his actions. It kind of almost seems like he might have done it before. And that will become one prevalent theme of this whole case. So, let us talk about Drew Peterson's background. Drew Peterson was born on the 5th of January 1954 in Bolingbrook in Illinois, US, to Donald and Betty Peterson. He was the eldest child and had two other siblings, and his dad was a Marine, and the only thing about his childhood that we know of is that his dad ran a strict household. His parents would stay married for the next 38 years, and when his dad died, the mom married her boss, and that's where he got the stepbrother, Thomas. In 1972, Drew will graduate from high school, and he will briefly attend a college, but after that, he's going to move to Virginia to join the U.S. Army and train as a military police officer. Before he joined the military, he started dating his high school sweetheart, this woman called Carol Brand. And he would actually marry Carol when Carol was only 17 years old. They stay married for about six years, and then Carol is going to learn that Drew has been sleeping around and has been unfaithful to her. Something that Drew follows like clockwork. This pattern of his that will become so repetitive during this story. So, after having two kids and being married for six years, she leaves his ass and takes the kids with her and gets the custody of them. While he was married with Carol, Drew had joined the police department, and after serving as a patrol officer, he got promoted to work as a narc in the drug unit, meaning he became an undercover cop, and he kind of looked the part. He looked, in 1978, like he could be on that 70s show, and with definitely, most definitely, ruin the freaking show, but he looked like he could play a part there. <laughs> you know what? I was thinking about this today. If there was a single moment in history 
like okay this won't sound like i want to do history but which one would you really like in your history in your lifetime history yeah that is a better way to word it a single moment in your lifetime history mine would have to be the day when maluma released felices los cuatro because it's not even about a song it's not that maluma looked like a whole ass main dish not even like an entree not even a dessert no Look like a proper main dish. He was just like the prime of his career. The song would make you feel like, well, maybe I could, you know, live this relationship where like I'm sleeping with my best friend's wife. And you're like, why am I thinking like this? What the fuck? I don't have the Maluma. Su suave cito. You know, I don't have the, the, the swagger. I don't have his I, I don't have the guts, the cojones to pull this off. But then, those are all great moments. Of that song and that day in general <laughs> but that's not why i would like to relive that day it is because fez from that 70s show and his glow up and of course i followed his career so i knew how fez from that 70s show glow up because he was also on ncis and stuff wilder wilderama whatever his name is so i was aware but I was just so happy that because this song is so popular and because Maluma is so popular that now the masses will know that this man had this glow up. And you are a fake fan if you didn't know that was Fez from That 70s Show. That 70s Show has the wholesomest vibes ever. If I was ever to convert people from one show to the next, I would convert all of those die-hard Friends fans to that 70s show. That is my true goal in life. If I ever get any clout, that is exactly what I shall do. Not to mention like the Mila Kunis and Ashta Kuchar together after all this time. Okay, so I was talking about Drew. How did we get here? <laughs> Undercover cop. Yeah, how did you? Uh, he tried. Drew tried, okay? He would have probably made it to the audition and then they would be like, you know what? kind of need people who are like attractive, not just confident. Because that will be another prevalent theme during this story. That is how did Drew get all of these women who are way out of his league. Like way out of his league. And that is truly because of his confidence. Because he never had the looks. In fact, some of you, me included, would probably say that Drew looked like not just garbage, but you know the garbage at like the bottom of the container? Like the garbage has been there, it has been collecting all of the other garbage on top of it, it's been stuck to the bottom of that container, it's been for all of the weathers and all of the seasons and nobody can really unstuck it from there. That is how I would describe Drew's face to you, but still, he got all the chicks because confidence is a lot more important than the looks. Now, let's go back into the story of the day. Jeez, cross. Between Carol and this next woman that he married, he would date other women. And he would date this woman who also reported that he was abusive to her, but he was cunning as hell. So, like, the abuse was first emotional, then it was physical, and then when this woman wanted to leave him, 
what he'd do is that he would always use the fact that he was a police officer, he would always use that power over people, so he would pile up parking tickets for her, but without actually leaving those parking tickets like in her windshield or at her home so that she's aware. So he'd be at the police station piling them in her name, and then when the warrant would be issued for her arrest, he would drop it. So just that he kind of messes with her head and she always knows that she will not be able to get rid of him so easily. He would marry his second wife, this woman called Victoria Connolly in 1982. And this woman was actually married when she met him, but he was relentless. So soon enough, she would get divorced and remarry to him. And she would stay in this marriage for the next 10 years. While he was controlling behind closed doors, Drew was also at this time under investigation from his own police unit because while he was an undercover police officer and was supposed to be busting these drug units and, you know, doing his undercover work, he was dealing drugs and failing to report any misdemeanors, failing to report any bribes while obviously getting those bribes paid to himself and benefiting out of it. So the police kind of fired him temporarily and then demoted him. So they rehired him, but he went through a demotion. Because of this demotion, him and Victoria had to move. And they moved to this small apartment and also opened up a bar that was called Sud's Pub. And the history truly repeats itself because this would be the time when Drew would marry another woman and would leave Victoria for her. And this woman's name was Kathleen. Now, something I want you to understand, because I'm not even going to fight people in the comments if they leave any, like I have seen on so many videos done on this case, I will simply block you. Because there are plenty of accounts of this story that don't mention this particular part, and I had to go searching, even though it is really easy to find, so I don't understand why they wouldn't mention this part. But one of the reasons why all of these women would fall for Drew Yes, what's confidence, as I mentioned. But the second one is that a lot of his wives were from broken homes, from broken environments. Kathleen had a rough childhood, for example. Her biological dad never paid child support. She had to leave her home at an early age. And she always desperately wanted security. She wanted somebody to take care of her. So that is why she fell for Drew. And that is why once Drew got divorced in 1992, it only took Drew two months to remarry and marry Kathleen Savio. With Kathleen, Drew would follow a very similar pattern that he did with any of his wives. He would be super nice while he was courting them, before they would actually marry him. As soon as they married him, as soon as they moved in with him, the emotional abuse will start. Then it would escalate to physical abuse. Kathleen was actually hospitalized one year after they got married. That is how badly he would beat her. She would end up having two kids with him, and it just seemed like he would break them down. It's like that classic narcissist thing where he would lift everybody up only to just break them down and ruin their confidence. But what I love about Kathleen is Kathleen was such a mood, because Drew, as a typical psycho, what he would do is he would record the family videos, right? 
And what strikes me in all of the accounts of story on Drew Peterson is how eerie these family videos are. They're supposed to be like Christmas videos, Thanksgiving videos, everybody to be happy. And literally because of him, the atmosphere in those videos is just always so dead. Kathleen looks at him in every single one of these videos like she is done with him. She is over with his ass. Drew couldn't stay faithful for long, though. I mean, we really don't know how many affairs this guy had going on the side, but we know that in 2001, so after being married to Kathleen for about eight, nine years, he started an affair with Stacy. And Stacy at the time was 17 years old, while Drew was 47. And he looked it, okay? He's not one of those people that would be like, daddy. No, I mentioned to you that every single one of these women was out of his league. Like, the league wasn't even there. The league was not even in sight, you know? When you would put league into GPS, that motherfucker wouldn't even be able to find it. Because the league ain't even in sight. But did you know where that expression comes from? Did you know that it comes from baseball? Because I sure as hell didn't. Apparently, the sport of baseball is divided into leagues, and these leagues are related to different levels of ability and professionalism. So if you are betting out of your league, it means that you just aren't on that level, which is kind of what's translated to relationships, and especially in this one. League ain't even in sight for you, mate. It just ain't even in sight. From this point on, things start developing real fast. So, in 2011, Kathleen would get a letter about Drew having an affair with a 17-year-old. So, he's gonna pick up her kids and leave. But between 2002 and 2004, now that she's living in a different house, there will be 18 domestic disturbance reports filed at her home. Because Drew just couldn't let her live in peace. Some of them would be for breaking and entering, some for abuse, some for the notations for returning the children late from visitation. So, he will finalize the divorce in 2003, and eight days after the divorce was finalized with Kathleen, he would marry Stacy, who was only 19 at the time. But, as I mentioned, he would stay living two blocks away from his ex-wife, Kathleen, and would constantly abuse her between 2002 and 2004. On one occasion, he told Kathleen that he will kill her and make it look like an accident. On another occasion, he broke into her flat, attacked her with a knife. She ended up reporting it, but if you remember, she's reporting it to the same police that technically forgave him and just demoted him, kept him at the same workplace. And, of course, he just again manipulated the situation. He said that actually she was the one that invited him. And then she kind of threw herself on him and he was like, oh my god, no, I'm married now. I'm married to a new wife. So he had to defend himself with a knife. Like, make it make sense. Why can you not just move on? That is one part in this story that just will never make complete sense to me. One of so many reasons why I hate his ass. Like, okay, if you cheat already, if you're a cheater and a scumbag, then just move on with that. 
life, why do you have to harass your ex-wife? So Kathleen was petrified. She knew that writing to the police won't really lead anywhere, so she wrote to the state attorney, saying that she knows how manipulative he was. And these couple of lines from that letter just ring in my head, sort of in hindsight, because it's as if she knew how this was going to end. It's as if she knew that he just won't let her live in peace. She wrote, This man is manipulating the system to destroy mine and benefit his. How many times has this happened to others? At the present time, I'm a full-time nursing student struggling to finish my goal. But because of officer false allegations, he and his girlfriend are charging me with battery. This isn't your typical domestic. Due to her writing this letter and actually going beyond the police, Kathleen was actually about to face him in court a few weeks from then. So, Drew had to do something about it. He couldn't risk his position, his status, losing his job and his wife and family again. The last weekend of February 2004, the kids that he had with Kathleen, so two of his children, were supposed to stay with Drew for the weekend. So that happened as normal, and it wasn't until Sunday evening, when Drew went by Kathleen's house to return the kids, that he noticed he hasn't heard from her the whole weekend, and now she wasn't answering the door. So he thinks to himself, it's fine, maybe she's just out, like, I'll return them tomorrow morning. And tomorrow, on Monday, March the 1st, he knocks on the door again, and Kathleen just isn't responding. So what he does, he goes to the neighbor's house, and he asks them, like, have you seen Kathleen? And they're like, no. And then he asks the neighbors to follow him into his own house to make sure that Kathleen is okay, so to have, just to have backup, the tough police officer that he is. And of course, when they walk into Kathleen's house, they find her in a bathtub. Kathleen seemed to have had a gash on her head, and she was unresponsive. The police is called, some of Drew's buddies are called on the scene, and they, of course, pronounce the death as an accident. What his buddies notice once they make it to the scene is that Kathleen is in the bathtub naked. Her hair was damp from the blood because we suppose that she slept in the bathtub, hit her head and then that blood was kind of gushing all over her hair. There were no defensive wounds on her body, her nails seemed to have been clean, so no DNA underneath them, no reason to believe that she was in fight, so of course they rule it as an accident. But something that they didn't take into account was that Kathleen was in a dry bathtub. There was no water in there. And she was naked. You know, how you do go into a bathtub that is completely dry without water, and then in the aftermath you put water into it. Yeah, the same way you go into a shower and then you press that button so the cold water reaches you first, because you just like to live life on the dark side. Mm -hmm. The investigating officer for Kathleen's death was Drew's buddy from the police force, but just to say that they have eliminated all of the angles, the autopsy report was published, and they questioned 
Drew's wife, Stacy, as to what he has been doing the whole weekend, can she account for him at all times? And Stacy gave him a rock-solid alibi. Stacy had to go into a police station for them to have a written record of this alibi, and Drew followed her there as a loving husband. It was later, in hindsight, said that he probably coached her. He was there before the interview and in the interview room just to make sure that she didn't sleep up. But that isn't the only weird thing that Drew did a couple of days after his wife, Kathleen, apparently accidentally died in a dry bathtub, which is completely believable. Not a sense of irony in my voice whatsoever. And that is that he produced an apparent will that Kathleen had. This was a handwritten will, and it hasn't been, like, verified by any lawyers. But according to this will, if one of them died, Kathleen or Drew, the other one was to get everything. And that didn't really work as a plan, because they couldn't really verify whose handwriting it was, but he tried. What he didn't have to try for was to get the custody of his children, so now Stacy and him were taking care of two of Kathleen's children. So let us talk about Stacy, because yet again I cannot emphasize enough on this during this account of events, is how much hate I have seen, like different hate comments online when looking for other people covering this case, have these women gotten for being withdrew? And on one side, that is victim-blaming and we should do better, but on the other side, I haven't seen an account of events that explains the background of these women, and especially in Stacey's case, the other ones, there's not so much, but especially in Stacey's case, that is one thing that is the easiest one to find when doing this research. What's hard in this story is making Drew's story make sense. Making it, like, connect from point A to point B. What wasn't hard at all was finding Stacy's background. So, let us dive into that, understand the psychology of why she was withdrew, why she would succumb to this pressure and give him an alibi. Stacy was born on January the 20th, 1984, and she was born to Christy and Anthony Kales. Her parents would have five kids, Cassandra and Stacy being the two of them, and according to the sources online, they were more into parting rather than parenting. One of those five kids will die only six weeks before Stacy was even born, because the ranch house where they lived caught fire, and Christy, her mom, that was about eight months pregnant with Stacy at the time, barely escaped, but a two-year-old daughter didn't. Because of this child's death, Christy and Anthony started fighting and drinking just harder than ever, just de-escalating. The kids would later say that they might have started a fire. They were playing with matches, but because of the death of this daughter, Christy and Anthony were now fighting more than ever. And this was the environment that Stacy was born in. But other children would later testify that this was an abusive environment even before Stacy came along, that the death of one child just kind of de-escalated the events. Despite the violent marriage, the drug and alcohol issues, and just neglecting their children, Anthony and Christy decided to have some more. So, in 1985, 
Christy gave birth to Cassandra. In 1987, she will give birth to another girl called Lacey, and this girl will die of SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. And if Anthony and Christy were spiraling with the death of the first child, with the death of Lacey, everything just went downhill. The neighbors would say that the kids were basically raising themselves. They would see Stacy running around without any clothes except a diaper in the middle of the winter. That her mom and dad just never cared. Stacy and the other kids could just run out of the door and get out of the house whenever they wanted. By 1990, Stacy's mom, Christy, was just in and out different psychiatric wards. She was drinking heavily, and she would also get busted for offenses like shoplifting and drunk driving. Anthony wasn't doing much better. He was one of those dads that would focus on making sure that he has enough alcohol in the storage room and that he has an expensive car rather than providing food on the table for all of these children. With Christy kind of being in psych wars, getting arrested, it was kind of a common knowledge in the household that she would disappear for weeks at a time. And Anthony would always say she just ran off. And nobody remembers him ever calling the police, filing missing persons report, none of that. In fact, by 1990, Anthony would be the one to file for divorce. The court records would state that Christy tried to go against the filing of the divorce, but then she would miss the court dates constantly. So, in the end, Anthony was awarded the sole custody of four of their children, including Stacy and Cassandra. And something that the neighbors remembered from the period of time that the kids were with their dad is that Anthony, who at that time worked in construction and animal control, would bring home these stray animals, and then he would neglect to feed them and give them shelter. Because if you remember, he only cared about his own ass and having a nice car to showcase to the neighbors for some fucking reason. So the neighbors said that they would see these animals and dogs, just they would hear them one day and then the other they wouldn't because he would just leave them out to die. Stacy somehow always knew that she wanted to leave this household and that she needs to try really hard at school. So she graduated early when she was only 16 and decided to leave home. But before she could do, her mother, Christy, actually disappeared. So in 1998, just around a year before Stacy is going to meet Drew, her mom went missing, and she was last seen walking down a street at the Chicago suburb of Blue Island. Both Cassandra and Stacy knew that she must have been murdered, that just her body has not been recovered. What isn't really clear is whether Anthony had any involvement, because at this point, their mom was living with another man. And most of the kids suspect that this man did it because he apparently said that she left for church that day and never came back. But she left quite about everything at home, like her purse, things that you would take out if you were going just to church because you need, like, the keys to walk back in, just like everything that you would put into a purse when you leave your house. So they knew that she hasn't left voluntarily. They reported it to the police, but the police never took it seriously, because they just thought she left on her own accord. She's a grown woman. And that is what Stacy and the rest of the family just really took to heart. 
So at this point, Stacy is dreaming of becoming a nurse, but without the money to go to college, she had to take some odd jobs here and there. So in 2001, she is 17. She is working as the desk clerk at a hotel in Bolingbrook in Illinois, and this is where she meets the cop that was still patrolling because his ass got demoted. So that's when she met Drew Peterson. I just uh, I just find it shady. Why was he in a hotel? I don't see that explained in a story, and I'm just thinking like. Had he gone to a hotel to meet somebody else? Because he's shady as fuck. I wouldn't put it past him. And what Stacy saw in Drew was a father figure. She saw security. She saw charisma. And she saw a better life for herself. Now we are going back sort of into the timeline, just briefly to speak about the marriage between Stacy and Drew. Of course, he didn't change overnight. He was still an abusive emotionally and probably physically, although we might not know on that part. We also have family videos from like Christmas and Thanksgiving and you can also see that Stacy's not having it. That she's just over that marriage. But also in the pictures and from the resources that I found online, you can kind of see that she started paying more and more attention to her appearance. She would take her kids out to Bible study. She began working as the sales rep for Avon. She sort of started breaching out so that her whole life doesn't revolve around Drew. And of course, he didn't like that because he wanted to be a center of attention while he went out and cheated and harassed his ex-wife. And just like Kathleen did here, Stacy in October 2007 finally plucks up the courage to go to her husband and ask him for a divorce. And the neighbor from the beginning of the story, the neighbor that lived next door, would be constantly in touch with Stacy. As you recall, she was the one to call like the kids to come over just because she went to a grocery store and got candy. So they were quite close. But she would say a week before Stacy's disappearance, she went in to check with Stacy, and Stacy was calm, cool, collected, but she said, I'm already dead. He's going to kill me. Going back into the police investigation, the picture of Drew is posted with a case summary, and the police finally kind of thinks like, okay, we shouldn't really be associated with you, you know, until the coast is clear and you definitely get cleared of this crime. So they place him on paid leave. Well, actually, when it came to his resignation, Drew was the person that handed in his letter of resignation. He was almost with the police for 30 years. But then the chief of police refused to accept the resignation filed a complaint against him alleging serious job-related violations that we are aware of that they just never looked into. So at first, they allowed him to take some paid leave, and then they allowed him to retire with more than $72,000 annually in pension benefits. Let us just all ensure that the potato head here is well supplied for. Yeah, you can't do anything. If you are a white man in the Marine, in the military, in the police department, you're good. You can literally do whatever. You are allowed to do whatever. You will be well supplied for. You will get paid leave to make sure you can put bread on your table. Did they give a fuck about any of the victims in this case? No. When all of them reported domestic abuse, 
No, when it comes to the potato head, just make sure he has a good retirement plan. A white man can do no fucking wrong in this world. Going back to the investigation, initially Drew was cooperating with the police. In the interviews that he would do, he said he believed Stacy left him for another man, but was safe and just simply didn't want to be found. If I said it once, I say it a hundred times, I don't understand how the police just doesn't hear the alarm bells in every single situation where a domestic abuser is just completely fine once this wife that they were possessive over leaves them for another man. For years, they haven't left a woman out of their sight, they had to follow her every step, but suddenly she left them for another man and they're okay. They're completely okay with that. Yeah, every single one of them. And the police is just there like, uh-huh. Just based on all of the events in history, that kind of statement should warrant the police enough probable cause to, uh, I don't know, search the house, literally bring them to trial, like a speed freaking ticket, like a fast fare to trial, because we know historically that that isn't just the psychology of these people. So why waste the fucking time? Because, like, I would feel as a mug in those police officers who are just listening to you being like, she's just with another man and I'm completely fine with that. <sighs> this is why I'm not a fucking police officer, because I wouldn't be able to just handle bullshit that would come out of people's mouths, especially people like Drew Peterson. The police will have different search warrants to search the Peterson home in the days and the weeks following Stacy's disappearance. So, it's not so much for what they found, on the scene, they found bedding, 11 guns, electronic equipment, his SUV, Stacy's car. It's more about the items that were missing, including a nightstand, scuba diving weights, a blue barrel large enough to hold a human body, the one that Thomas, his stepbrother, mentioned. So those missing items kind of paint a picture in my head, like, why is the nightstand missing. It's a whole-ass nightstand. Unless an argument ensued, whether it was about the divorce, whether it was about the freaking alibi and Stacy connecting the dots that he actually had something to do with Kathleen's death. Domestic violence went too far and maybe Stacy was hit and fell onto the nightstand which caused her to die. I don't know that they screened for blood. I don't know that they ever used luminol. Like, I just don't think that that has ever happened. Then you have the weights and the barrel. So that barrel, wherever they put it, is probably at the bottom of that canal, which is also a dumping spot and has so many items there. And this is what her sister Cassandra thinks that happened. She said, Drew Peterson disposed of my sister's body on the evening of October 28, 2007, in the sanitary and shipping canal, after having dropped off his stepbrother. I have sonar images of her lifeless body on the bottom of the riverbed, which I will never release. That is not how I want the world to remember my beautiful sister. Her sister shared these images with the police, but she said in the past, in 2007, the police never sent divers down to recover the barrel and possibly Stacy's body. They spent all of the time sort of making it look like they're doing the work, like pulling all of the cars out of the shipping canal instead of looking for a blue barrel that we know left Drew's house and couldn't be found. Cassandra said, 
I would have had my sister's body home in the flesh 22 days after Drew murdered her. I believe that my sister was buried in a discreet location. I've gone to the media, I've planned and conducted searches. Nobody's more frustrated than I am at the lack of justice. We can't pursue the case without a body. Illinois State Police are doing what they can and are allowed to do because they have they have guidelines they have to follow. And obviously with me, I don't have any guidelines. I can go where I want, when I want. I don't have a boss to look up to. All I got to do is get permissions to be on the properties that I'm at. And during this period of time, while authorities, different volunteers, different divers were conducting what they called an extensive search of the area, finding no trace of Stacy Peterson. His face was plastered all over different interviews that he was doing, his appearances on the Today's show, everywhere where he could get an appearance. But he would never really even talk about Stacy, helping to find her, possible abduction, like anything that would even remotely make sense appearing concerned about his missing wife, because in his head she was never missing. He mostly made it the Drew show. He made it all about himself. On the Today Show, for example, he appeared and just brushed off that Stacy ever really wanted a divorce, and he said, <laughs> this is gonna make you sense. if you're driving, just pull over, please. And if you're a woman, just in general, be ready to scream. I'm not trying to be funny here, but Stacey Peterson would ask me for a divorce on a regular basis, and it was based on her menstrual cycle. <laughs> Here is how Drew related to the reporters. I only now noticed after watching everything again, but it's truly bizarre to me how fascinated this man is with holidays and that atmosphere just in general. There is something so psychotic when you put it into context that even after his wife disappeared, he's more focused about why aren't people celebrating Thanksgiving with their families. And then when you put that into like perspective of all of the videos that I have overlaid of just him and how he recorded his previous wives, both of them really, Kathleen and Stacy, and how that atmosphere actually looked like behind closed doors. There's just something so eerie. Like, here is the guy that was probably behind closed doors saying, you know, well, you're going to ruin a holiday. Like, 
some people aren't this lucky. I wouldn't put it past him that this is how he was manipulating these women. Like, we have this huge family, we have all of these children. Like, you are ruining it now by destroying a vibe. Like, look at this holiday atmosphere. He was the type of guy that would put up a front where he's like, I'm a holiday family man. And then as soon as the cameras would switch off, he would turn into a domestic abuser that he always was. It's just how many times he mentions the holidays during these encounters with the police that rubs me the wrong way. What's going on today? What's going on today? Yes. We went to McDonald's. Okay. We had Happy Meals and McRib sandwiches. How's that? <laughs> and that's what's going on today. What I want to talk about is I'm going to come camp myself in front of your house and see if you like it. If he feels pressure from all the scrutiny, it's hard to tell. At times joking, smiling, even laughing with reporters, you almost get the feeling that Drew Peterson is somehow enjoying the attention. Officially, however, he is considered a suspect in the sudden disappearance of his fourth wife, Stacy Peterson. The former Bolingbroke police sergeant came out of his house yesterday with a home video camera walking around the small army of TV news trucks and personnel virtually camped out in front of his Bolingbroke home. This bizarre spectacle amid reports that one of his relatives tried to commit suicide just days after allegedly helping Drew remove a large blue container from Drew's bedroom the day after Stacy Peterson disappeared. The Chicago Tribune reports that their relatives said the mysterious container was warm to the touch, but late last night our own Julie Unruh confronted Peterson about the container and the allegation that the container may have had the body of Stacy Peterson. The relative of yours saying helped carry a rectangular container out of your home on October 28th. I have no idea what anybody's talking about like that. Warm to the touch. No. He says he believes that he helped you dispose of your wife's body. Can you at least respond to that? No. Not at all. No response. my lawyer. I get nothing. No to it whatsoever. Nobody mentions this part in any accounts of this story that I have heard. It kind of bothers me because I wouldn't put it past Drew that he heard about the other two Peterson cases and just wanted to join the triad. So hear me out. In chronological order, I think it was Lacey Peterson's case first, then the staircase with Michael Peterson and then Drew Peterson's last. So, sorry if you have the beef with me for not doing them in chronological order. But just based on the media appearances, I think there is a definite point where this kind of translated into PR for him. Where he just, like, flipped a switch and he was like, you know what? I'm part of the Peterson's triad. I'm not trying to diminish the domestic violence in here and the fact that the police ignored it over and over again and that is their fault for not preventing this from happening in the first place because, again, by the historic defense, by the psychology of these people, we know how these cases will end. But then, once the escalations happened and they kind of brushed them under the rug, it allowed him to see how he wants to represent himself. And he just chose the pathway of publicity. And maybe he followed into the steps of one of the other two Petersons. Just food for thought, you know. It will only be after he actually realized, okay, what is this thing about the barrel? Getting the barrel out of the house, warm to the touch, shit. Thomas spoke to the police that he lawyered up and got a defense attorney, Joel Brodsky. And from this point on, everything becomes really 
PR rather than just defense. Because from now on, his defense attorney would be appearing in interviews with him. So he would still be as much of a public figure and just entertain the media, but now just with a backup guy. Once he was finally named a suspect in Stacy's disappearance in November 2007, a judge ordered for Kathleen Savio's body to be exhumed. And she was exhumed on the basis that one gash on her head wouldn't have been enough to render her unconscious and cause her to drown. So they suspected that maybe that autopsy report wasn't necessarily correct. And another thing in that exhumation petition was, if you remember, I told you that the bathtub was dry. So the only logical conclusion would be she actually filled up the bathtub, she got into it naked because, you know, nobody is a freaking psychopath going into an empty bathtub and then filling it up with water. And then as she slipped up, maybe, you know, she opened up that hole and the water drained. But the blood evidence that was found on the scene wasn't supporting that. So it really looked from the autopsy report that was initially released as if Kathleen just walked into an empty bathtub or rather was placed there. Once Kathleen's body gets exhumed, they put forensic pathologist Michael Bowden to examine it. And this guy is famous because he testified in OJ and Phil Spector's trials. And he would conclude that Kathleen was actually murdered. He discovered all sorts of bruises that were neglected during the first autopsy report, covering the front of her body. And then on the back, it seemed like it was just extensively scraped. So, as if somebody inflicted these bruises within an hour of her death. As if somebody was maybe dragging her body to put it into a bathtub. When it comes to that gash, he concluded that there was an inch-long deep wound that resulted from a blow hard enough to split her scalp, but not open it down all the way to her skull. He found six or seven bruises that just didn't coincide with somebody slipping into a tub, and he would later testify that the bruises were not old at all. All of them seemed to have been put on Kathleen's body within 24 hours of her dying. As the prosecution is trying to build a case against him and have offered Thomas Morphy an immunity deal, Drew got himself a publicist. And this publicist, in 2008, confirmed that Drew was engaged to a 23-year-old woman called Christina Rains, and she is soon to become his fifth wife. But then, on January 2009, Christina actually moved out of Peterson's house, and later she would say this engagement was a publicity stunt that was designed to keep Drew in the media spotlight. And... Um, I, I wouldn't recommend you watch the interview because the two of them actually did appear in multiple interviews, like the Today Show again, and I don't know who gave them publicity. I just... This poor woman, I don't know what she was going through. Was she completely in on it? Was she charmed by Drew? I'm not sure of her agenda. I'm glad she got the hell out of there and hasn't actually 
married the guy, but that interview gave me next level schadenfreude, secondhand embarrassment, awful. It's like, how desperate do you have to be as a middle-aged man accused of your wife's disappearance and murdering another wife that they have just literally confirmed that are trying to get you to trial for, to just want to be on television. Just go into journalism, my man. You don't have to go to join police force. Just, if that is your dream, then go. Be the reporter. Do one of those, like, and now we go to weather in Bollingsbrook or wherever the fuck you are, Illinois. And do it. Appear on TV for the right reasons, not for the fucking wrong ones. But now, because he was treated as a suspect and he knew that any day he will really be arrested, on the 1st of April 2009, he called in a radio station. Where's Drew? We got him, Drew. Peter's finally picked up. I'm here. All right, buddy. Well, you called us. What's going on? I've just been on the phone with uh, my attorney, Joe Bratsky, for the last half hour. He's telling me just to keep my mouth shut and sit tight, but i got to come clean with it. Um, I wanted to do it with you. Is that okay with you? Well, I don't know what you're going to say. Oh. This is hard. Being covered, this is hard. Well, I, I mean, what, what are you, what are you going to do here? Well, I just got to tell you, it's been weighing heavy on my chest for some time now, and I just got to say, that the chicken wings... And Dixon Bar and Grill are the best day I've ever had. 10.3 West Lake. Happy April Fool's Day, man, cow. <laughs> the chicken wing place that he mentioned here was Joel Brodsky's, his attorney's chicken place. So he was promoting. So while this guy is promoting him and getting him all of the interviews where he doesn't speak about anything really but like holidays, well, Drew is repaying him by promoting his restaurant on radio on April Fool's Day. Not only did Drew not want to disappear from the public eye, but now with this breakup, he found it really hard to date again. So he did this. You know what you should do? You should have a winner date with Drew contest. Oh, I'll do a dating game with you. Drew, it's up to you, man. I don't know. It's a lawyer. Yeah, why not? Could being the right caller get you a date with Drew Peterson? Police say the former suburban Chicago police officer is a suspect in the disappearance of his wife, Stacy. But that didn't stop his attorney from suggesting the promotion to radio station WJMK-FM. And host Steve Dahl reportedly thought it was a great idea. But the station's vice president says no way. He says when a date with Drew will not happen on the station. Peterson's attorney, Joel Brodsky, says his client didn't do anything wrong and is entitled to have some fun. Finally, in May 2009, Drew Peterson was arrested and indicted on two counts of first-degree murder in the death of his third wife, Kathleen Savio. To get him on discharge, because they couldn't really get him for Stacy's disappearance, but they knew that they had to have him off the streets, the autopsy report wouldn't really be enough. So, they had to establish a law because of this guy, and they called it Drew's Law. I'm not sure if this is, like, actual legal document. Hopefully not, because why the fuck would you call it after a criminal? Why not call it Kathleen's Law? It just makes zero sense. 
but they had to pass a legislator into the law in 2008 so that they can make exceptions in this case and accept hearsay. Accept all of the statements by Stacy's friends and family stating what has actually happened and that she actually had to cover up for Drew that he coached her and that he was the one who actually went and killed Kathleen that weekend. So Stacy's friends and family testified that Drew asked her to cover up for him the night that Savia died, but they also testified that Stacy confided in them that she feared him and that she wanted to file for a divorce that week and that he had to stop her. And now if you compare that to Kathleen's letter to the state attorney, you can kind of see a pattern. Every time that Drew has to lose something, that he has to appear in court, face the consequences for his actions, it seems like he chooses an easier path. And an easier path here is for him to get rid of his wives. And in my opinion, his logic was, you know, back in the day when he was just divorced from Kathleen and started dating Stacy, that he will stage that as much as possible to look as an accident because he was still within the police force. But now, you know, the divorce came at a really unfortunate time. He was just about to retire. So he can't really account on the newbies in the police force and all these people that he has never worked with. So the only way to go around that was the nobody, no crime way. And finally it fucking backfired because how many more women would have just suffered in this man's hands? There was also Drew's co-worker that testified that Drew offered him $25,000 to kill Kathleen as she knew a secret about him that could get him off the force. The problem here for the prosecution was that Drew's defense will be based on the initial autopsy report. And that's something that he would push really hard for whenever he would appear on these talk shows. The fact that now there's this whole new autopsy report, there's this whole new person doing it, why didn't they find anything suspicious the first time around? So his defense is truly going to be like 99% dead. The defense will be dead combined with no physical evidence, no sign of forced entry, no fingerprints, no DNA. But the prosecutors had talented attorneys on their end. They had that famous forensic pathologist. They explained Kathleen's circumstances to the jury, how they were fighting over finances and over the custody of the children, and the Drew here could really benefit. And then they put that jury into the mind space of why you would be going into your own bathtub the same way that you have done for, like, the past couple of decades, but this time you sleep up and drown. Which I think that would be it for most jurors. So it was in this case. And 44 witnesses later, on September the 6th, 2012, jury found Peterson guilty and he was sentenced to 38 years in prison. Jurors would later say that the most compelling evidence for them was the hearsay evidence that was allowed with this new legislator that was passed under Drew's law. 
Stacy is still missing. As I mentioned, her sister believes that she knows where she is. And I'm going to put some links up in the description box. One of them is searchingforstacypeterson.com and the other one is a GoFundMe page to help out her sister fund this new search by divers because those are freaking expensive. So if you have anything to spare and this case moved you in any way, shape or form, just go and spare something on that website. And if anyone has any information about her disappearance, please contact the Illinois State Police on 815-726-6377. Now let us conclude this story about the potato head with the aftermath and the motives, as always. So the aftermath, because this somehow isn't where the story ends, is that in 2015, Drew Peterson, from prison, was brought to trial again. Why? Why would that happen, Maya? Is it for Stacy's disappearance? No. No. It was because within jail, he tried to solicit a murder of the state's attorney from his case, this guy called James Glasgow. So just to make this sink in, he didn't last two years in prison without scheming, without wanting to get somebody killed. But something that speaks volumes is that during that trial, he got additional 40 years for an attempted murder of the prosecutor. Do you remember how many he got for the actual murder, premeditated murder of his wife? 38. So he got more years for an attempted murder, arranging an attempted murder of a prosecutor. No, I love the justice system. Justice system is amazing. No, I just love it. I love it. Let's talk about motives before I punch a fucking screen. Okay, so... You know the deal by now. If Todd Grande published a video on a person I'm speaking about, I'm listening to the video. So, he analyzed Drew Peterson's case, and there's a bunch of personality disorders, but everything sort of like wrapped around and then with a little bow of narcissism on top of all of it. I think that we could all agree, just based on even the limited amount of videos that I included here. There's more. There's so, so much more online. I literally try to limit it because it just pisses me off, and it pisses me off that it works. That the media, the journalists, people who study this, this is why I'm not in this fucking profession, because people who study this, in order to get views, in order to keep their jobs, they allow these people to run the fucking show. While victims' family members have to create their own YouTube channels, have to create their own websites, in order to just get any publicity, because they aren't invited to appear on today's show, they aren't invited to appear on all these late-night shows. Just a wild thought. Imagine, instead of being a journalist, one of the 20 waiting for Joe Peterson to get out of the house and speak about fucking Thanksgiving, being the actual pioneer, being the journalist that makes the news because you are consistently on the side of the victims. You're pushing that GoFundMe page, you're pushing the website that her sister has made, and you're getting people to invest money for that sonar search that her sister keeps mentioning. Maybe, for a change, make history for all the right reasons. But that, unfortunately, didn't happen, and hasn't happened in any case that I have covered today. 
So just food for thought for people who have studied the same degree that I have. So, I digress. So he's a narcissist, which means he likes to be in the center of attention. He couldn't deal with the fact that his wife wanted to divorce him, so he needed to be in control, and when he wasn't, well, at least he thought, why not profit out of it? And when it comes to grandiose narcissism, that's the aggressive side of it, the failure to take responsibility, to even mention that he's responsible in any way, and the lack of empathy. You know, normal people would consider themselves guilty. Like, what could have I done for them not to leave me, for them not to want to leave me with another man? Drew never displayed any of that. And both of these, narcissism and grandiose narcissism, are characterized by low neuroticism meaning that he would be able to conceal this aggression with no issues. That is the side that everybody ever saw Drew. Even when he would be provoked, he would never get eggy, he would never get aggressive. It would only be behind closed doors when the cameras were off, with a side that nobody wanted to see. I will never stop searching for my sister. I will never lose hope. And I will continue to search... I've gotten letters of support from people, and I still have them. And it touches my heart that people are out there that care and want to help or just send thoughts and prayers and support me in what I do in searching for my sister. It gets frustrating at times, searching and not finding her. But then I reassure myself that by not finding her, I'm one step closer to finding her, like, you know, mark another area off the map. I've had a lot of help from volunteers. They've come out on horseback, done horseback searching. Um, I've had people with ground penetrating radar, water sonar, side scan sonar, all the water stuff sonar, cadaver dogs. I obviously haven't found her yet, but um, I've covered a lot of ground. And it's just, and any new location I get is another mark on the map of where I've been and where I've searched for her. It would mean the world to me and my family and Stacey's children if we could find her and bring her home and put her at rest to where she belongs. It would mean a lot of people would contribute to helping my search. I spend more of my time now finding resources and people to help than I do actually searching for my sister. If I had a ground penetrating radar and a cadaver dog, I would be able to cover more ground more efficiently and effectively in searching for my sister. Once I find my sister, I will either continue to help other missing families searching for their loved ones, or I'll donate the equipment to another organization that does searching. Any contribution would be of great help, and no contribution is too small. I'd like to thank the people that have come to searches and volunteered their help and their time to search for my sister. I'd also like to thank the media for putting their time in and covering my sister's story and keeping her face out there. I have all the faith in the world. I'm not going to stop until I find my sister. Cassandra shouldn't be out there looking for her sister now. People on the internet shouldn't be speculating as to why a woman would fall for Drew. Accounts in this case should offer that information up. 
the same way Drew's words have been thrown about. Because there's a story that makes sense here. All you have to do is to see through one Peterson's waves of narcissism in order to get to it.